Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello and welcome to another Fertility and Sterility On Air. Micah, Eve, well, lovely to see you, so to speak. And today we have with us um, Blake Evan, who is uh, the media editor for FNS Reviews, who's joining us. Hello, everybody. Hi, Kirk. Good morning. Welcome, Blake. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. Excellent. So today we're doing the Table of Contents of Fertility and Sterility, April 2021, Volume 115, Number 4, for those keeping track at home. But we also are interjecting some articles on purpose with our assistance with Blake uh, and FNS reports and even an article from FNS reviews. So you listeners are going to have a lot to go back to to look up and read with these other sister journals as well. Well, I'll start with the views and reviews. In this month's issues, we have an outstanding views and reviews about reproductive health and the COVID-19 pandemic. The review was put together by Rick Legrow and really does have an all-star panel which describes the potential reproductive effects of COVID on each of the following aspects, male reproductive health, female reproductive health, and a third section on the andrology and art lab. Dr. Hoteling and Collings put together the article on male reproductive health. He notes in this article that there might be a gender response to the virus. He also notes how viruses might affect the male reproductive tract in general and describe some of the limited and conflicting data about COVID-19 viruses and whether it can be found in semen. There are some interesting anecdotal data, but generally speaking, the conclusion of the authors is that data regarding the effect of the virus on semen and male reproductive health is actually quite limited. In the second article, Dr. Denise Jamison and colleagues discuss the effects of COVID on pregnancy and the implications for reproductive health. Please look at this article for yourself because it's quite comprehensive. At a high level, she notes that there's little data to support early pregnancy loss and no association with any patterns of birth defects. However, there is reasonable evidence that infection can cause a more severe course for women while pregnant, resulting in hospitalization and ICU admission with greater risk of mortality. Premature birth seems also to be more common in affected women. The article points out that there are very few pregnant women enrolled in any of the completed vaccine trials, and this has led to some confusion regarding maternal vaccinations. I didn't know there was such a discrepancy in, in recommendations. For example, the WHO currently does not support vaccinating pregnant women, whereas the CDC and ACOG does. So apparently these recommendations are changing rapidly. In the final article by Dr. Amy Sparks and colleagues, they take their very structured approach to the risk of transmitting the virus as part of ART practice. They report that there's very little data suggests that any staff members have transmitted virus to any cells in the lab. And to date, there's been no known transmission from one cell to another, again, in the ART or the andrology lab. While, of course, we should continue routine universal precautions in the laboratory, it seems that precautions are needed to limit staff-to-staff -staff transmission just as much. Again, this is an outstanding views and reviews that's difficult to summarize in only a few minutes. I hope you will all take the time to read it carefully. Eve, you were on the task force. Did any of this surprise you? 
Uh, no, I think what was more surprising, and to your point earlier about the WHO, there's been wavering recommendations. And I just want to stress, we did a whole podcast on this a few weeks ago with update number 13 on the ASRM COVID-19 task force recommendations, that ASRM has really led the charges in stating that not just should vaccine not be avoided in women who are pregnant, but ASRM took the big leap right up front saying pregnant women should be vaccinated and women who are considering conception should be vaccinated. And I want to highlight that several states have now put pregnant women into the 1B category. And the CDC has also changed its recommendation to consider pregnancy a high-risk state. So I think the, the pendulum has really shifted away from uh, pregnant women should not be withheld vaccination to strong advocating for pregnant women to receive the vaccine. Great. Thanks, Eve. Micah, I understand there was a pretty good fertile battle in this month's issues. There was a great fertile battle, which is always one of my favorite uh, parts of the journal to read. In April, it's non-invasive pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy and spent blastocyst media will substitute for trophectoderm biopsy. And this was developed by editorial editor Carlos Simone. So Carmen Rubio opens the pro argument by noting his recent published studies from his group that suggest there's an 85 to 88 percent concordance with cell-free DNA and media with biopsies of trophectoderm and inner cell mass. He also cites data that suggests that both aneuploid and euploid embryos shed cell-free DNA at similar rates an important point that the con side makes. Catherine Rakowski rounds out the pro-argument by pointing to data that may indicate that cell-free DNA is less prone to errors associated with embryo mosaicism, and data that suggests that cell-free DNA may actually be more accurate than trophectoderm biopsies for predicting the inner cell mass. She notes several benefits of NIPGT. You can get data from low-quality embryos that you maybe otherwise couldn't biopsy, you don't need to train embryologists in biopsy and have maybe the discrepant results based upon technique, and medium collection might be easier to standardize than biopsy technique. On the other side, uh, David Baer opens the con arguments by saying that cell-free DNA largely has not been validated to measure what it actually claims to measure. If you look at the data cited by the pro-authors, you'll see it's based on a relatively small sample of three studies totaling around only 100 embryos. He raises concerns that abnormal DNA shedding might be part of a normal euploid blast development, uh, and you could result in the discarding of normal embryos. Richard Scott rounds out the con side and also argues that normal embryo development may include discarding of abnormal DNA from apoptotic cells. He argues that cell-free DNA does not yield results in 98% of embryos, which trophectoderm biopsy does. And he reiterates his view, which I mentioned in last month's podcast, that tests first need to be validated through non-selection studies to establish their false positive and false negative rates. Then if the test is valid, it needs to undergo randomized controlled trials to see if the test actually enhances our ability to predict live birth. Overall, this is a great fertile battle this month. Both sides seem to agree that this technology has potential and may indeed be clinically useful in the future, but needs more research. As a field, I think we tend to be very fast adapters of technology. This is absolutely a fascinating area that warrants more research. However, I don't believe we're at the point where this we should be clinically adapting this technology at this time. Sounds like we're going to be revisiting this in a few months or a few years. Yeah, I absolutely agree. 
Yeah, and I think more on fast adaptation in some of the future articles that we'll be discussing today. The next section that I want to talk about is our inkling section, and this was a piece called Darwin Meets Mendel in the Reproductive Medicine Field, Homo Sapiens 2.0 is Inevitable. And this was written by Gene O'Brien, Elia Adashi, and Carlos Simone. It is beautifully written and I think serves as a wake-up call and a call-to-action piece stating that the REI community should participate in all ways possible in the guidance of technological, clinical, and ethical values of the oncoming revolution of germline editing, as well as PGT for polygenic disease, what they title PGTP. They outline the history and evolution of the field from single gene PGT to advances in aneuploidy screening and PGT-SR. They discuss the next generation of humans, which they call Homo sapiens 2.0, and the need for REIs to be at the frontier of decision-making and ethical discussions. This is a must read for everyone who is interested in the future of our field. That does sound good. I hope everyone reads that as well. I want to start with the uh, peer-reviewed section of the journal now, and I get the privilege of talking about this, this month's seminal contribution. The title of this article is Simulation Training for Embryo Transfer, Finding from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine Embryo Transfer Certificate Course. First author is Dr. Ramania and senior authored Richard Reindoller. I'll note that all authors are actually from the ASRM. You might recall that Richard Reindoller spearheaded this program when he was CEO, um, and it really is a fantastic simulation program uh, and mechanism. I hope we're all familiar with the dilemma regarding having fellows perform embryo transfers. I don't think anyone doubts that embryo transfer is an acquired skill. The question is how much skill does it take to acquire this skill? It does take practice, and we equate greater practice to greater skill. As Malcolm Gladwell states in one of his books, The Tipping Point, it usually takes many hours. I think it's 10,000 hours to be an expert. Now, I'm not suggesting that our fellows require 10,000 hours of training before they graduate, but it is relatively sad fact that one in five graduates never perform an embryo transfer upon finishing their fellowship, and 50% report they do not feel prepared to perform an embryo transfer later. I understand the dilemma. In vitro fertilization is a competitive sport. If I let my undrafted rookies take the field at crunch time, it may make my program look bad. So the question is, is simulation the answer? The article by Richard Reindoller and others suggests that clearly simulation has a place. The article demonstrates that using a simulation program, almost all fellows gain confidence in their embryo transfer skills. This includes fellows who never performed an embryo transfer, as well as fellows who had, had experienced transfer during their program. The embryo transfer course is a combination of didactics and uses a well-made simulator. Some of the transfers in the simulator are easy, and actually some of them are quite difficult. The fellows noted improvements in confidence using all of those transfers, but especially the easy one. I guess it just takes the fear out of doing the transfer for the first time. So as written in an exceptional reflection on the subject by Dr. Seegers and Thomas, suggesting that is clearly a step in the right direction. However, as they note, we need more than just simulators. Airline pilots train on simulators, but ultimately do get real flight time. So this will start the debate on whether the embryo transfer simulation course is best used as remediation for programs struggling, or whether it's something all fellows should use, or it's just a stepping stone to get us to practice more with our own patients. A few weeks ago, we reviewed an article about on this podcast that looked at the fellows at Northwestern and how the embryo transfer success was just as good as the attendings. 
Dr. Seegers and Thomas pointed to this article as well, and they suggested that perhaps there's two ways to explain this. One is that the fellows might have taken the easy cases, and therefore there was a selection bias. Alternatively, they suggested that perhaps fellows at Northwestern are unusually skilled. What do you think, Eve? Do we need simulation, or do you have exceptionally skilled fellows? I think it's a combination of both. There's definitely a selection bias in that if there was a difficult transfer that was anticipated, the fellow did not participate in that transfer. But I also think that it was careful attending guidance, that we have the attending physician doing the ultrasound, guiding the fellow every step along the way. And I think it's really the ultrasound and the placement of the embryo that matters uh, equally as much as the skill of the person who is transferring the embryo to the uterine cavity. Blake and Micah, what do you think? Have you used this transfer? And uh, do you think it'll be mandated or just optional? So we've also published uh, data out of our fellowship, similar to Eve, that show our fellows have uh, pregnancy rates that are the same as our faculty, and that happens within the first 10 embryo transfers. So I hope that people will use this to encourage fellows to do live embryo transfer and to train them for that as opposed to replacing training for uh, live embryo transfer. Our fellows can do hysterectomies and C-sections. They can do an embryo transfer. Yeah, we also have a paper coming out of Northwestern. We're hoping to present this at ASRM this year, looking at attending and fellow um, use of the embryo transfer simulator. And then we looked at the various parameters of the simulator, compared that to pregnancy rates, and identified key components of the transfer that might be important to practice and to normalize. So I don't want to give a total spoiler alert, but be on the lookout for that paper from our group coming down the pipe. Blake, have you used it? Yeah, so I think the simulation course is great. I definitely echo what you all have said, though, in that um, in, in a real scenario with a live patient, there are some differences. Uh, you know, the simulator doesn't have cervical mucus, and I found my catheter being bent at times, and that was quite frustrating. But overall, it is uh, very realistic and very helpful. But um, certainly echo everything you all have said and definitely agree. So next, we're moving on to the ASRM pages for April. We have two documents from the Ethics Committee and one document from the ASRM Practice Committee. The first is Human Immunodeficiency Virus, HIV, and Infertility Treatment, an Ethics Committee Opinion. The key points are that sperm preparation techniques uh, can reduce the risk of transmission from HIV males to their partners. The risk of transmission from a mom to a baby is less than 2% with modern antiretrovirals and the avoidance of breastfeeding. And services for fertility treatment should be offered to patients with HIV when those resources are available. The second document is Development of an Emergency Plan for In Vitro Fertilization Programs, a committee opinion. They say that all IVF programs and clinics need to have an emergency plan codified and in place to protect fresh and cryopreserved human specimens, embryos, eggs, and sperm and to provide for continuation or cessation of patient care in the event of an emergency, pandemic, or natural disaster. As an IVF medical director myself who recently had a facility flooding issue, I can testify to the importance of having a codified emergency plan in place, both for the disasters you can foresee and for those you never imagined might happen. The final ASRM publication is Access to Fertility Services by Transgender and Non-Binary Persons, an Ethics Committee Opinion. Some of the key points from this document are that programs should treat all requests for assisted reproduction, regardless of the patient's gender identity, 
and the programs should become educated on how to provide culturally competent care for all of their patients. As always, these are three important ASRM documents, and like all ASRM committee documents, I feel that these are must-read for all reproductive medicine care providers. Thanks, Micah. Let's get into some of the peer-reviewed articles. And I think I'm going to reintroduce Dr. Blake Evans, who's going to start us off with his uh, first article from FS Reports. So this first article I'm going to talk about is from FNS Reports, and this is one of the new sister journals from Fertility and Serility. And this is by doctors Velez, Olander, and Niederberger, and it's entitled Piospermia, Background and Controversies. So this is a review article once again, and it's intended as a reference for trainees and providers on the diagnosis, etiologies, and management of leukocytospermia, also known as piospermia. A literature review was performed of prospective trials, but also from guidelines from major international societies. We found that piospermia is suspected if there's more than 1 million round cells per ml noted within the semen specimen. In higher concentrations, white blood cells induce oxidative stress through reactive oxygen species, which in turn damage sperm motility and fertilization capacity. The American Urologic Association recommends that men with greater than 1 million per ml of white blood cells be evaluated for underlying genitourinary infection, but there's no formal recommendations as to how they should be evaluated. When they looked at the etiologies of how piospermia comes about, there's both infectious and non-infectious. And when we look at non-infectious, there are things such as environmental, such as tobacco, alcohol, marijuana use, for example, varicocele, autoimmune disorders, chronic prostatitis, and genitourinary malformations. So then when they summarize management in asymptomatic men with piospermia, the strategies are largely categorized into either antibiotics or anti-inflammatories. And although there are several different combinations of therapies out there, the authors nicely will summarize the majority of what the studies recommend. So for antibiotics, the most common regimen is doxycycline 100 milligrams daily for three to four weeks or Bactrim twice daily for four weeks. And most of these references will reference and say either antibiotics can be with or without frequent ejaculation, which is every three days. And then with regard to anti-inflammatories, more commonly was rofecoxib, 25 milligrams daily for one month, or valdecoxib, 20 milligrams daily for two weeks. And it's uncertain if the patient is going to need multiple rounds of these treatments or not. So the article concludes that treatment with antibiotics is indicated in men with infectious symptoms. However, in the absence of symptoms, it's not clear whether piospermia is an indicator of subclinical inflammation, infection, or possibly a non-pathologic finding. And so based on the findings of this paper, I think it's important to have further studies that assess the impact of these treatment methods with regard to pregnancy outcomes, because the authors point out that it seems unclear of the benefit in natural conception versus IUI versus IVF patients. And I also would encourage the listeners to go back and read this paper and take a look at figure one, and it shows a nice algorithm for testing and treatment of piospermia. All right. Why don't we go uh, into the assisted reproduction? You want to start, Micah, with... Uh why don't we do the one Micah has, then I'll do one, which I think the adverse outcomes has a lot to talk about. And then, Eve, why don't we do yours? And then we'll go back to the regular order. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. All right. Take it away, Micah. We're going to move on to the uh, ART section of the journal. Similar to last month and other articles this month, we have another study that explores if IVF pregnancies are associated with poor obstetric outcomes. Herman and colleagues from Tel Aviv published the study, Obstetric and Perinatal Outcomes of In Vitro Fertilization and Natural Pregnancies in the Same Mother. This study investigated women who had two births, 
one which was from an IVF pregnancy and one which was from a natural pregnancy and compared outcomes between the two. Out of over 50,000 deliveries, there were 544 women who met these criteria to serve as their control in both arms of the study. Roughly half the first pregnancies were IVF and half were natural. Compared to the natural pregnancies, IVF pregnancies had similar risk of preterm birth, small for gestational age, and hypertensive disorders. The authors conclude that there's no difference in obstetric outcomes between the same woman who delivered two children, one conceived naturally and one by IVF. They suggest that differences seen between IVF and natural pregnancy outcomes in other studies may therefore be the result of patient-based effects and not the IVF technology itself. The commentary from Hoyos, one of our own FNS Interactive Associates, and Ori from Miami agrees with this conclusion. They conclude that after 40 years of IVF, we can take solace that overall ART has become very safe and effective treatment, although still some work needs to be done to elucidate the true magnitude of any risk or if that risk exists. Overall, there's no such thing as a perfect study. We were very critical last month of a different epidemiologic study that used tubal factor controls as the non-infertile control group. Uh, but I think that these data add to the body of evidence that overall IVF pregnancies uh, have good outcomes. Thanks, Micah. I can't help but interject that um, I saw natural in the title. I really much prefer the term unassisted medical conception or unassisted conception. If we start calling every pregnancy natural, that means every pregnancy with IVF is unnatural. Just an idea. <laughs> I'm just glad that I didn't call it spontaneous pregnancy because I know what your reaction would have been then, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I was very careful when I was reading these articles and crafting my thoughts on what I wanted to say to move away from using spontaneous pregnancy. <laughs> it's true. Not many women spontaneously conceive. Well, I'll use that as a segue to the next article, which also has natural in the title. This is um, also about adverse um, outcomes. So adverse obstetrical and perinatal outcomes in 1,136 singleton pregnancies conceived after programmed frozen embryo transfer compared with natural cycle frozen embryo transfer. So the first author in this article was Dr. Asher Hoge, and my apologies for the pronunciation, and Dr. Anna Pinborg, and this article is out of um, Denmark. It's really amazing how quickly our field moves. You just heard an article described by Micah about um, the outcomes of IVF in general, but now we're on to specific aspects of frozen embryo transfer. So this is really going on to the next question, how to optimize health regarding the particulars of the transfer itself, no longer ART in general. So it's been a few years now since Valerie Baker and her um, colleague, Dr. Conrad, published what I think is a seminal paper suggesting that the corpus luteum may matter and that the absence of a corpus luteum, or at least in a program cycle where there is no corpus luteum, uh, maternal health might actually be better, specifically regarding preeclampsia. So this paper adds to the body of literature, suggesting that a more natural approach to frozen embryo transfer may be better. This is a large cohort of more than 1,000 successful embryo transfers. The authors compared data regarding maternal outcomes and fetal outcomes with a program frozen cycle um, compared to a modified natural cycle or a true natural cycle. The data composes um, more than a decade worth of information from 2006 to 2014, again using the national registries available in Denmark. 
The main finding was approximately a 90% increase, or a relative risk of 1.87, in hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Specifically, the odds ratio for preeclampsia was 2.40. Other interesting findings included a greater risk of postpartum hemorrhage and a greater risk of induction of labor and cesarean section. I can only speculate that this might be because of the increased obstetrical complications noted, but still I'm not really sure why more ART children are born with cesarean section than not. There was no difference in fetal outcomes other than an increased risk of birth weight um, for those um, greater than 4,500. There are some other interesting findings that I want to point out as well. First of all, the absolute risk for hypertensive disorders in this cohort is relatively modest, around 10% in the program FET and around 6% in the natural FET. Moreover, many of the other obstetrical complications, including the risk of C-section, was only around 30%. The risk of preterm delivery was only around 7.5%. Acrosomia, around 3%. These numbers are very different than what I'm used to seeing in the labor floor here at the University of Pennsylvania, and it may represent the health of a European cohort. Thus, the generalizability of this study may be a little bit limited. Now, that's balanced with the other huge advantage of this study um, because of the national registry and the completeness of the data. I also want to note that the dates are, are a little bit old, you know, 15 years or so. I don't think the methods for uh, embryo transfer have changed a lot, but we really can't get into the specifics here um, because embryo transfer is still evolving. It's worth noting for a second, for example, that um, the only definition we have for program frozen embryo transfer in this paper is um, no use of HCG, and women were all treated with progesterone and estrogen with or without down regulation. So that's actually pretty nonspecific. A modified natural FET used an HCG trigger where a natural FET did not. For the purpose of this analysis, those two quote-unquote natural groups were combined. So again, be a little bit careful in trying to extrapolate the findings of this study to the specifics of how you practice yourself. So what do we do with this information? This is very good high-level information about an important need. Clearly, this information can be used to develop an appropriate randomized clinical trial to remove some of the potential bias from this, even though well done, cohort study. Finally, I want to caution that we need to be a little careful about over-interpretation of these findings. As carefully described by Drs. Varsen Hoyek and Valerie Baker in the reflection, this paper adds to a growing literature of observational studies demonstrating that program cycles appear to be associated with a risk of hypertensive disorders. We assume it has to do with the lack of corpus luteum and perhaps the hormone relaxin, but the basic biology of this has not been worked out. There are clear advantages to a program cycle, most notably greater flexibility in scheduling, and program cycles may require less monitoring. However, these advantages clearly need to be balanced against the greater morbidity of the mother some nine months later. Another specific question that is just not answered in this study is there a difference between modified natural cycles or a, quote, natural cycle? And one final thought came to mind. If we are all going to switch over to natural cycles, does that mean a woman with anovulation or has a regular cycle should undergo ovulation induction so that we can trigger with Ovidrill to make a corpus luteum? I hope I've triggered a research study rather than a change in practice with this comment. Overall, let's not look like the importance of this study. The study is well conducted by an experienced group of researchers using national registry data with large numbers. It should affect the way we think about this situation. I, of course, look forward to the results of large randomized trials, which I think are actually ongoing, um, to confirm this important topic. Comments, guys?
Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the NAPPRO study, which is comparing, quote, natural cycle, uh, which is with a trigger uh, compared to program cycles. And the primary endpoint is development of preeclampsia. I really think that study is going to be the gold standard for FET 2.0, where possibly we move away from program cycles in their entirety and move towards natural cycles. I think the jury's still out. I agree, and I, I'm happy to say that we are part of that study here at University of Oklahoma, and we're, of course, in the early stages of it and just not in pregnancies, but I'm very eager to see the results of this study. So I know earlier we alluded to rapid adaptation of new technology, and I think this paper is particularly relevant to that point. It is called Routine Endometrial Receptivity Array in First Embryo Transfer Cycles Does Not Improve Live Birth Rate. And the first author was Carrie Ristenberg from UCLA and Guyane Ambart Simeon from Reproductive Partners in California. And I'd really like to congratulate these authors on a study well done. This is clinically relevant, timely, and seeks to answer a very important question. The adaptation and integration of the ERA into everyday practice has been rapid with a paucity of data supporting widespread use. Currently, 1,500 centers are utilizing ERA testing, and over 77,000 cycles have been completed. The objective of this study was to compare live birth rates between patients undergoing personal embryo transfers after doing an ERA test versus patients that underwent a frozen embryo transfer with standard timing in their first euploid FET cycle. A secondary objective was to report the rate of displacement of the window of implantation in this population of patients that did not have implantation failure. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the ERA, it is performed via endometrial biopsy during a mock programmed embryo transfer cycle, and the biopsy is performed on the day that transfer would ordinarily take place. The tissue sample is then analyzed for endometrial gene expression of 248 genes and categorizes the endometrium as pre-receptive, receptive, and post-receptive. In the subsequent frozen embryo transfer cycle, the duration of progesterone exposure prior to embryo transfer is then adjusted based on these results. If pre-receptive, an additional 12 or 24 hours of progesterone is added, and if post-receptive, again, 12 or 24 hours less of progesterone is administered prior to transfer. In this study, there were 147 patients who did an ERA prior to embryo transfer, and they compared that to 81 patients who had standard timing. ERA was was interpreted as receptive in 41% of patients and non-receptive in 59%. Wow. 59% of patients without implantation failure had a non-receptive ERA. I think that alone calls into question the interpretation of the genomic data. Of these 59%, 93% were pre-receptive, about half needing an additional 12 hours and half needing an additional 24, and 7% were post-receptive, with the majority needing 24 hours less of progesterone. The ERA group then underwent FET with an altered duration of progesterone in accordance with the ERA results while the standard FET underwent transfer on the AM of day six after five full days of progesterone. Midway through the study period, practice changed to utilize PIO exclusively in FETs 
based on the excellent RCT by Divine and others that was published in FNS in 2018. The live birth rate did not differ between these two study groups and was 56.6% in the ERA group compared to 56.5% in the standard FET group. I think it's a fantastic study. It is not without limitations. However, it takes a real-world dilemma and it studies it using real-world practice. And I think it provides really strong evidence that ERA does not improve outcomes in first euploid embryo transfer. The reflections piece to this manuscript was written by Richard Scott. He cites the non-randomized study design as a limitation due to selection bias of who may get screened. But ultimately, because the groups did not have notable differences, the effect of this bias is minimized. His conclusion from the manuscript is, and I'm going to quote, the ERA has no value in screening in the general ART population, end quote. He discusses the recent study from Paul Pertea and others from the EVRMA group that we discussed in the January episode of FNS on Air and recently did a global journal club on. The study showed a cumulative pregnancy rate of 93% in those patients with three euploid embryos who underwent successive frozen embryo transfers using the same protocol with the same duration of progesterone exposure. Dr. Scott calls to our attention the need for a prospective blinded non-selection study evaluating the ERA where results are withheld until after the treatment cycle. And I truly think this is the ultimate test to determine the predictive value of the ERA. And again, congratulations to the authors on a study really well done. Micah, Kurt, Blake, what are your thoughts? I'm glad that we finally see data coming out on the ERA a little bit more than what we've had before. I think many of us who are more slower adapters or minimalists in our treatment have been skeptical as to the clinical utility of this test. It's a little bit um, mind-blowing to see that it's been used in 77, the 77,000 IVF cycles that you said um, with, without this uh, data to, to necessarily support its use. So this is good to start seeing initial studies come out. Uh, you mentioned uh, Kate Devine. She ha also has the um, synchrony study, which is looking at this, and the arm that's randomized to the control group will have that non-selection uh, ERA test embedded into it. So look for that at ASRM 2021 for the first big RCT that will further evaluate this and hopefully help us drill down onto whether or not we should be uh, utilizing this test clinically in the general uh, IVF population. Yeah, I think it really calls into question whether or not the window of implantation is as tight as we think it is, with 60% of patients having an altered window of receptivity and truly no difference observed. It, it does make me think that that window may be wider than we had originally thought. Kurt? Well, it might be that this is testing the wrong aspects of the window, so we're defining it by this ERA test when it's maybe isn't definable by the CRA test. But the other thing that strikes me as an epidemiologist is if you find a test that's supposed to look for what's called implantation failure or a subgroup of patients, why do you think it's going to work in everybody? I mean, that's a really difficult task to show in a clinical trial because the majority of people don't need the test, so therefore it's not going to help. So it doesn't surprise me that this test was negative, but I'm still not 100% sure of the biology of this test. Right. I mean, I think that goes to the point of pretest probability. Well said. All right. Excellent.
So that was pretty specific in terms of technology. Why don't we hear a little bit about um, lessening the technology? Blake, I understand you have an article regarding InvoCell. Thanks, Kurt. I do. This next article is also from FNS Reports, and it's entitled Real-World Experience with Intravaginal Culture Using InvoCell, an Alternative Model for Infertility Treatment by first author Dr. Jellaretz Nolan and senior author Dr. Daftry at Bering Pharmaceuticals. A little bit of background in regards to this study. One of the primary motives to investigate this new technology is that cost is a major limiting factor to access to fertility care. A very eye-opening statistic that they quote in this paper is that in the U.S., one fresh IVF cycle costs 52% of the average annual household disposable income in non-mandated states compared with 13% in states with insurance mandates. The authors point out that when patients fail multiple rounds of ovulation induction, IUI, there is a critical need for in-between therapy prior to undertaking the high costs associated with IVF. Intravaginal culture has been highlighted as a possible solution to increase access to care while minimizing costs associated with IVF. In 2015, the FDA cleared InvoCell for intravaginal culture. This is a small 1.5 by 1 inch device that's placed into the vagina and allows the patient to essentially become an incubator for gametes during fertilization and for embryos during pre-implantation development. So in this retrospective multi-center descriptive study, they looked at cumulative pregnancy rate, live births, and percent of good quality embryos using an intravaginal embryo culture device called InvoCell. There were 526 cycles using blastocyst transfer. Women were less than 38 years of age, BMI less than 35, all had an AMH that was greater than 0.8. Most sites used conventional insemination, but about one-fourth of the cycles were ICSI. Live birth ranged from 40 to 61% per transfer across all centers, which is consistent with SART success rates in this age group. The authors conclude that intravaginal culture provides an alternative treatment model with satisfactory outcomes for patients seeking a different path for treatment. The participating sites use intravaginal culture to address a diversity of medical, financial, and social factors that determine treatment success. Doctors Babiev and Jane of the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine provided the reflections commentary for this article. They discussed that although intravaginal culture decreases the cost of IVF treatment by obviating the need for embryo culture in an IVF lab, it is associated with possible decreased blastocyst formation rates and subsequent lower number of embryos that are available for transfer and or prior preservation. And these factors need to be considered moving forward. I agree with them in that a formal cost-effectiveness study needs to be done and outcomes in various patient populations should be considered as well. A couple of other things to note about this. The device label recommends for InvoCell that intravaginal incubation period be less than or equal to 72 hours, but this is based on day three transfer data from two non-U.S. cities. And as U.S. practices have steadily evolved into performing day five transfers, I think that this study provides important findings that are clinically relevant. And a couple of other things I'll ask to mention about this is that the FDA cleared InvoCell for up to seven oocytes. And while the mean number of oocytes in this study loaded in the device were eight to nine, they range from one to 30 thus also indicating more reassurance that large cohorts of oocytes can be utilized successfully. So ultimately, with improved fertilization and embryo development rates, I think intravaginal culture can be an important part of infertility treatment in the years to come. Um, 
All right. This next paper is called Shorter Telomere Length of White Blood Cells is Associated with Higher Rates of Aneuploidy Among Infertile Women Undergoing In Vitro Fertilization by Brett Hansen at EVRMA and Emery Selly, who has a joint position at Yale and EVRMA. I was really excited to read this paper. Telomeres seem to be a hot topic in REI, but spoiler alert, I don't think the title of the paper is an accurate reflection of the data presented. This was a prospective cohort study of 175 infertile women undergoing IVF. The purpose of the study was to investigate the relationship between telomere length and markers of ovarian and embryonic performance. The study sought to determine whether there's a relationship between relative telomere length of white blood cells and cumulus complexes and patient age, AMH, peak estradiol, number of oocytes and M2 oocytes retrieved, blastulation rate, and aneuploidy rate. On the day of oocyte retrieval, genomic DNA was isolated from white blood cells and cut cumulus cells. Telomere length assessment was performed for both tissue types using qPCR. Cumulus cells were pooled from all follicular fluid removed during the egg retrieval. Here's what the study actually showed. First, a statistically significant inverse relationship was noted between the relative telomere length of white blood cells and patient age. With increasing age, participants were observed to have significantly shorter white blood cell telomere length. Okay, this is consistent with our current understanding of telomeres and aging. Second, there were higher rates of aneuploidy in those with shorter telomeres. The caveat here, and why I think the title is misleading, lies in this next statement. After adjusting for age, the relationship between white blood cell telomere length and aneuploidy was no longer statistically significant. Third, probably the most novel finding of this study was that progressive shortening of telomeres was not observed in cumulus cells, which intuitively has biologic plausibility as these cells are dormant for many years. Overall, I think the author should be commended. It's novel research. It's a very nicely done study. But again, if you listen to the title, shorter telomere length of white blood cells is associated with higher rates of aneuploidy among infertile women undergoing in vitro fertilization, I think it's misleading as the relationship between telomere shortening and age are well-defined and the relationship between age and aneuploidy was similarly well-defined. There was a nice reflections accompanying this piece that was written by Danilo Fimadano, Laura Rienzi, and Filippo Maria Ubaldi, who poetically state that several pieces of information are written in our patient's genome, and others can be read in their blood. Therefore, we must keep trying to interpret these small pieces of the puzzle with a holistic perspective. So the next paper in this section is titled Diminished Ovarian Reserve is Associated with Reduced Euploid Rates via PGTA Independently from Age, Evidence for Concaminate Reduction in Oocyte Quality and Quantity. This study comes from first author Eleni Greenwood-Jaswa and senior authors Marcel Cedars and Mitch Rosen from UCSF. This was a retrospective cohort study of over 1,100 women who underwent PGTA and they compared euploidy rates in women who were under 42 and those that had DOR versus those that were normal responders. In the primary analysis, DOR was defined by the Bologna criteria. In sensitivity analysis, DOR was defined by the bottom quartile of egg yield, and they made adjustments for patient age and the PGTA platform. 
In the findings, they had 225 women uh, who met the Bologna criteria for DOOR, and their euploidy rate was 16% lower than controls, 29% versus 45%. And again, this is their euploidy rate, uh, not looking at their egg yield or blastocyst yield. When they compared the bottom quartile instead of Bologna criteria, this difference was smaller at only 4%. There was no difference in live birth with euploid embryo transfer in the DOOR versus the control. So the authors conclude that blastocysts from women with DOOR are less likely to be euploid than those from women with normal response. They suggest that these data then imply that the quantitative ovarian aging that we see with a reduced egg yield may also be tied to qualitative ovarian aging that is more likely for the eggs to be abnormal. The commentary was from David Seifer from Yale, and he mainly focuses on AMH and possibly predicting ploidy rates and blastocyst yield, something that was outside of the objectives of this study. But he writes that AMH models that predict euploid blast development might be clinically useful tools for counseling patients. I do think it's worth noting that this study has the exact opposite findings of a larger study from Scott Morin and colleagues from RMA New Jersey. This could be the result of methodologic differences, or it could be that we just don't know the answer to this question yet. But ultimately, I like this study because it challenged how I personally think about aneuploidy and DOOR as two separate processes. I think we still need more data to determine if that is true or not. I remember having this controversy when I was on the ASRM practice committee years ago about this whole idea of decreased ovarian reserve. Is it quality or quantity or both? So um, I guess we haven't resolved that question yet. So I'm going to discuss an article that I think has a little less controversy. So this article is titled, Follicular Flushing Does Not Improve Live Birth and Increases Procedure Time, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. The first author is Dr. Martini, and the senior author is our own Micah Hill from the group at the National Institutes of Health and Walter Reed National Medical Center in Bethesda. So as a fellow, I was taught by a number of different clinicians regarding the optimal way to perform an egg retrieval. To be honest, everybody had their own little quirks, and like most fellows, I ended up synthesizing a little bit of knowledge from each of my mentors. At the same time, technology was moving quite fast. Believe it or not, I'm old enough to remember the first retrieval that I saw was through the bladder. Well, we've come a long way since then, and I remember flushing a lot when I was a fellow. Somehow, it made me feel more comfortable if I heard the embryologist shout egg or oocyte each time I handed them a tube. Since then, IVF has become a lot more efficient, and I almost always use a single lumen needle, and I often finish the case before I know how many eggs I have. I hope we're moving in the right way, and this study seems to shed some light on that. This meta-analysis looked at 11 studies spanning 1989 to 2020, with almost 1,200 cases included in this trial. Comforting was that there was no difference in live birth demonstrated between follicular flushing and direct aspiration, nor was there a difference in clinical pregnancy rate or ongoing pregnancy. We're talking pretty good confidence around a null finding. The relative risks are 1.03, 1.04, and 1.08, respectively. Interesting, flushing led to a lower number of oocyte yields and mature oocyte yield, by average about a half an oocyte. As one might expect, the procedure time was higher by somewhere between 2 and 10 minutes. So in conclusion, follicular flushing during oocyte retrieval increases procedure time, but does not improve live birth or any of the other secondary outcomes we think of when we're looking at ART. So it looks like technology 
has advanced efficiently and in the correct way. Micah, this was a very nice paper. It updated a previous meta-analysis in the Cochrane Review and now has the largest and most up-to-date information. I think what I liked most about this paper was the sensitivity analysis, where you could actually look at trials with definitions of small follicles versus large follicles, um, inclusions of DOR, et cetera. I think the paper is relatively definitive regarding this question. Do you have any other thoughts you want to share with us on the results of this paper? And actually, I have a specific question. Why on earth would flushing decrease the number of eggs that you yield? By the way, your fellow did a great job. <laughs> to your specific question, Kurt, I don't know why it would decrease the number of eggs yielded. It was a statistically significant finding, but it's less than one egg per patient. So whether that matters clinically, I don't know. But if it doesn't show a benefit, then why are we doing something that adds costs because it adds time to the OR and OR time is expensive? And I will just say that uh, as the only person who never does flushing in my group, uh, my nurses and embryologists have posted this article in our egg retrieval OR for all the other doctors to see uh, so that they can point to it every time they say they want to do flushing on a patient. I just have to say that brings back a little bit of PTSD from fellowship. <laughs> back in the day, we would flush anyone who had five or fewer follicles, and the retrieval would take a really long time. I'm really pleased that, that we have confidence in the way we move forward is the correct way. Sometimes technology isn't always better. Blake, do you flush or don't flush? Well, I was going to say, as someone who is trained under Dr. Micah Hill, and always in the back of my mind hearing, we don't need to flush, it doesn't help anything, um, it is very nice to see this now in paper form, um, in, in a published format. So. Um, I will admittedly say I flush if someone has very low yield on occasion, not because I think that it's going to improve outcomes, but some, at some point I might say that I'm telling the patients we did everything that we possibly could to get all the eggs, but I know in the back of my mind, Micah is always telling me it's not going to help anything. <laughs> so I admittedly do flush if there's maybe like two or three follicles, but otherwise I never do. Well, make sure you don't lose that half an egg. Right. It'll come back as a GV anyways, probably. All right, Blake, I think you have another paper for us from reports. Why don't you lead us into that one? This next study from FNS Reports is entitled Novel Ploidy Analysis in Ectopic Pregnancy by Dr. Rachel Ruderman at Northwestern University and colleagues. And we are privileged to have two of the colleagues here with us today, Dr. Barnard and Dr. Feinberg. A little bit of the background of this study, single nucleotide polymorphism, which I'll refer to as SNP in this summary, has improved accuracy for identification of maternal contamination and widely applied in assessing products of conception. Although risk factors for ectopic pregnancy are well known, about 50% remain unexplained. Aneuploidy as a contributory factor in ectopic pregnancy has been a source of debate for several years. In this case series report, there were initially 178 women evaluated who underwent surgery for ectopic pregnancy. SNP array was used to test ectopic tissue, but was done so on formalin fixed and paraffin embedded tissue blocks that were archived at follow slides in order to distinguish whether or not they were aneuploid. Maternal and paternal DNA samples were also obtained via buccal swab and were compared to the ectopic tissue analyses. In short, the DNA from the pathology slides is extracted is fragmented, ligated together, and then amplified after adding a DNA polymerase in a microarray platform with about 300,000 probes covering all chromosomes is utilized to analyze copy number, uniparental disomy, and parental origin. 
The authors found that ultimately, of the initial 178 women, there were eight that had sufficient DNA from the archived surgical samples to undergo single nucleotide polymorphism microarray for analysis, all of which were found to be euploid. Additionally, maternal contamination was ruled out in all cases. The authors conclude that this study provides proof of concept for the use of routinely stored formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue blocks with DNA extraction or SNP array to detect ploidy status in ectopic pregnancy. I think this is a very interesting study, and I have always wondered whether or not ploidy status is associated with ectopic pregnancies. The authors do note that this study was limited by the inability of the technology to detect duplications, deletions, or balanced tetraploidy, mosaicism, and also that if maternal triploidy was reported, it would be reported as maternal contamination. Definitive conclusions can't be made based on a small sample size, but I do think this study provides a novel concept of doing genetic analysis on ectopic surgical samples, and the authors were also able to perform genetic analysis on sort of histology slides, which is very interesting. Since we have two of the authors here with us today, I'm interested to hear if you all have any other commentary on this study. Yeah, thanks, Blake. I I was actually really surprised by these findings. I had a few patients who were one step away from donor egg who were matched with a donor who conceived and then were found to have ectopics. And I just thought, and I've always thought that ectopic is along the spectrum of aneuploidy, spontaneous abortion, and more common in patients with DOR. And so I was, I was certain that we were going to find aneuploidy, and I was shocked that we didn't. And so I do think further study is warranted. I do want to give a special shout out to Kurt for allowing us to tag on to his R01. We had the idea for this study. We had applied for a funding source. Uh, we're not granted that funding source. was really bummed. And on the way back walking from boards in Dallas, Kurt and I were chatting and I mentioned my study idea and he had an R01 specifically studying ectopic pregnancy and thus the collaboration was conceived. So thanks, Kurt. This would not have been possible without you. Oh, my pleasure. I, I've obviously been studying ectopic pregnancy for a long time. I was pretty convinced alternatively that ploidy doesn't have a place in ectopic pregnancy. So I'm glad we can uh, not dissolve. I'm sorry. I'm glad that we cannot resolve this issue and it's still ongoing, but um, I'm glad this study saw the light of day. This next article is titled, Complications of the Third Stage of Labor in In Vitro Fertilization Pregnancies, an Additional Expression of Abnormal Placentation. The authors for this are Hadas Giner Herman and Michal Kobo from Tel Aviv, Israel. The objective of this study was to assess the correlation between IVF and complications of the third stage of labor. Don't laugh. I actually had to pause and remember what the third stage of labor was. For those of you who don't remember or don't do OB, it is placental expulsion. The background rationale for this study is that there have been other studies showing a correlation between IVF and increased risk of placental abnormalities, such as placenta previa, placental abruption, velamentous and marginal cord insertion, and pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia and IUGR. This was a retrospective study spanning a 12-year time period. The third stage of labor is actively managed with 10 IUs of oxytocin given at the time of delivery to facilitate placental expulsion. 
In their center, spontaneous expulsion is allowed for up to 30 minutes, and if not separated at the 30-minute mark, the placenta is manually removed. They define third stage of labor complications as one, manual removal after 30 minutes, two, manual exploration of the uterine cavity in cases of suspected retained placenta, three, postpartum hemorrhage, and four, chorioamnionitis. The study group consisted of 35,000 vaginal deliveries, of which there were data available for 903 IVF pregnancies, two-thirds of which were fresh embryo transfers and one-third frozen embryo transfers. So what did the authors find? They found that placental abnormalities were more common in the IV group. Third-stage labor complications occurred twice as often, but still note the low prevalence, 5.9% of IVF deliveries and 2.8% of non-IVF deliveries. And a logistic regression model was used and found that IVF was independently associated with complications in the third stage of labor. Interestingly, there were no differences between fresh and frozen embryo transfers. No doubt the study is interesting, but I can't help but wish that the comparison group was different. I know this theme arises again and again, and I feel obligated to bring it up. What about the risk of infertility and not the risk of IVF technology? I would have loved to see a comparison group of patients who conceived with ovulation induction, IUI, or even those with a prolonged time to pregnancy, but who conceived without assistance, note to Kurt, without assistance and not spontaneously. I think these types of studies are too quick to blame IVF technology and not account for the disease process that leads a couple to pursue IVF. There was a reflections piece written by Pietro Bordaletto and Phil Romansky from Cornell, who nicely summarized the study and its findings and note that academic medical centers are uniquely positioned to answer these important questions at the scale required to arrive at a true estimate of effect size. But I still argue that more work is needed with better comparison groups. And maybe this is something that we'll look at at our center. We have, we're a large academic medical center who does 12,000 deliveries a year. So uh, good food for thought here. Eve, I think your point on the control group is a great one. I also wish that these um, sort of epidemiologic studies would always frame the findings, not just in the standpoint of statistical significance, but what is the effect size? What is the number needed to treat or the number needed to harm? And if you look at this study, let's say that they had the right control group and that difference is there, it's a 3% difference in the third stage of labor. So you'd have to look at 33 infertile women sitting in front of you and say one of you will have a complication in the third stage of labor, but all of you will get to take home a baby. And would that change the actual outcome? So I think these are important things to study from a scientific standpoint, but I think we need to be careful in how we counsel our patients to not overstate what the effect size of this risk is. Well, yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, we, we have to pay attention to the absolute risks, not just the relative risks, and not just the p-value. Well said. Micah, I think we're going on to another study uh, in the ART group. So we have a study from Bissonnette and Yetzpi and colleagues from Canada called Individualized Ovarian Stimulation for IVF, a multi-center open-label exploratory study with a mixed protocol of folotropin delta and HMG gonadotropin. So this was a multi-center uh, study 
that assess the outcomes of combining Minipure with folotropin delta for IVF stimulation. And for those who aren't familiar, folotropin delta is a newer FSH that has increased levels of glycosylation and sialiation, and this makes it have more potency at the receptor level, and it gives it a higher half-life due to decreased uh, renal excretion. And the purpose was to explore IVF outcomes when you mix these two drugs together. Now, this was a single cohort study, meaning that they only looked at patients uh, that used this combined protocol. They didn't have a true control group. So for a control group, the authors used data from the ESTER-1 trial, which was an RCT looking at folotropin delta, but not including the use of Minipure. So when they compared these two trials, they found that the mixed protocol had more oocytes and more good quality blastocysts. Now, when you added Minipure to the protocol, there was a higher rate of OHSS, uh, but these OHSS patients did not require medical intervention. So the authors concluded that using an individualized dosing approach with this new FSH combined with Minipure would increase the number of usable blastocysts. The commentary was from Kim and Speedy from Northwestern University, and they note that the ESTER trial did not allow for individualized dosing adjustments, whereas this trial did, and they note that further research is required to refine gonadotropin dosing algorithms for a better balance of efficacy and safety. I think the lack of a true control cohort for this study makes the comparisons to the ESTER trial limited. There were differences in the management of these patients as well as the baseline demographic data. So I don't personally think that this study demonstrates that a mixed protocol is more effective. I think rather it establishes the proof of concept that folotropin delta is appropriate for use in mixed protocols with Minipure or other LH-containing activity gonadotropins. Thanks, Micah. Blake, I understand you have a paper from Reports that also talks about folotropin delta. Why don't you fill us in on that? Thanks, Kurt. So this is a good segue into this paper. And this study is also another article from the Sister Journal FNS Reports by Dr. Olga Hockman and colleagues at the London Health Science Center entitled In Vitro Fertilization Cycle Simulated with Folotropin Delta Result in Similar Embryo Development and Quality When Compared with Cycle Stimulated with Folotropin Alpha or Folotropin Beta. So although the title itself summarizes its findings, let's take a look at how they came to this conclusion. So as a bit of background info here, folotropin delta is a new drug that we've been hearing about lately. It's a recombinant FSH that's expressed in human fetal retinal cell line, and so its glycosylation profile is similar to that of the native human FSH. As a brief mechanistic refresher to our listeners, a mammalian cell line is needed to make these meds in order to obtain appropriate glycosylation and subsequent bioavailability. Folotropin alpha and beta differ from Delta as they are derived from Chinese hamster ovary cell lines. Prior studies show that folotropin Delta has lower clearance and higher ovarian response. So in this retrospective study of 403 IVF ICSI cycles, they were grouped on the basis of stimulation with folotropin Delta versus folotropin Alpha or Beta. They sought to evaluate embryo parameters, implantation rates, and clinical pregnancy rates, in which they defined as the presence of a gestational sac within the uterus. The authors found that there was a significant difference noted in the proportion of good quality blastocysts, with the delta group having a lower proportion compared with the control group. However, after they excluded day-free vitrification or day-free transfers, there was no difference in the embryo quality between the groups. 
Overall, the authors state that stimulation with folotropin delta and IVF ICSI cycles resulted in similar embryo development and pregnancy rates compared with those stimulated with folotropin alpha or beta. And these findings support that folotropin delta could be an alternative stimulation medication. They also add that because there is a lower clearance of folotropin delta, that it may have an improved safety profile. I think that this is a nice study, and another IVF medication that benefits our patients is always welcome. However, I have a couple of thoughts about this study. They used growth hormone in the control group, but not the delta group. This was done so in patients that have a history of prior poor response. And although the mean age is similar in both arms, there is a significantly higher number of advanced maternal age patients, use of minotropin, use of growth hormone, and also higher mean number of oocytes that were retrieved in the control arm. And although these variables were considered in the statistical models, I personally struggle seeing that these two groups are on even playing fields. Antrophological count categories were provided and similar, but anti-malarian hormone was not available, which the authors do mention as a limitation. I would be interested to see if using polytropin delta is more cost-effective to use this medication as well, and if the results are also reproducible in larger future studies. This next paper is called Optimal Lead Follicle Size for HCG Trigger in Clomiphene Citrate and Intrauterine Insemination Cycles, an analysis of 1,676 treatment cycles by first author Colby Hancock with senior author Zeb Rosenwax from Cornell. The objective of this study was to identify the optimal lead follicle size for HCG trigger in Clomid IUI cycles. This was a retrospective study for patients under age 40 with ovulatory dysfunction or unexplained infertility undergoing their first cycle of Clomid treatment. The main outcome measure was clinical pregnancy rate, and this was plotted against lead follicle size in one millimeter increments. An ROC was generated for clinical pregnancy rate as a function of lead follicle size. What the authors found was that the odds of clinical pregnancy were 16.4% and 15.7%, 2.3 and 2.2 times higher, with lead follicle sizes of 21 to 22 and greater than 22 millimeters compared to 19 to 20 millimeters. Multivariable logistic regression was performed, and lead follicle size was an independent predictor of clinical pregnancy rate, even after accounting for confounders such as age, infertility diagnosis, BMI, cycle day of trigger, and endometrial thickness. Overall, I think it's an important study, highly clinically relevant, and has strength in numbers with over 1,600 included patients. I suspect it may change practice patterns for people triggering at larger sizes, and I think this is going to be a widely cited paper. The reflections piece accompanying this manuscript is titled One Millimeter in the Time of COVID and was written by Dr. Brad Hurst, who admits to being a skeptic. Dr. Hurst calls into question the balance of risks and benefits in trying to gain one millimeter more growth. He states that the dramatic increase in clinical pregnancy rate is impressive and unexpected, but what are the ramifications of this, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic? I don't know. What do you think? When do you normally trigger for Clomid IUI cycles? We usually trigger somewhere between 20 to 22 millimeters. So to me, this was more evidence that going bigger might be better and certainly isn't harmful. I think the days of triggering at 17, uh, maybe those are getting less and less. 
Yeah, we do it the same way. I always thought our natural follicle was 22 to 24, so we should be getting closer to that level. But I'm not sure Brad's point. He thinks an extra day of exposure to the clinic is going to hurt women? I think it was more the point of bringing women in for repeated scans to get to that perfect follicle size. I think what we often do is we'll see a 19-millimeter follicle and we'll say trigger tomorrow. Like, we don't necessarily bring women back in. We know that follicles will grow one to two millimeters per day, and so guesstimate. But I think in this study at Cornell, they were bringing women back in for precise follicle measurements. I always thought like prenatal care, it was the visit to the clinic that improved the outcomes, not necessarily the medical treatment. So we have another article this month on time-lapse imaging, and I seem to always uh, get these articles, which is fun. This month, it's from Barry and colleagues from the UK who seek to explore factors which might be confounders in assessing the association of time-lapse parameters with uh, live birth. The study's called an investigation into the effect of potential confounding patient and treatment parameters on human embryomorphokinetics. So this is a retrospective study of over 2,300 embryos uh, evaluated by time-lapse imaging. And they compared 14 patient characteristics, such as age and BMI, with 19 well-established time-lapse markers. So keep in mind, this means they're making 266 primary statistical comparisons in this paper. They found some patient and treatment characteristics that were associated with some of the markers of time-lapse imaging. For example, patient age was associated with four of the 19 time-lapse markers, but not with the other 15. The authors therefore conclude that embryos are subtly affected by uh, patient and treatment characteristics, and they interpret the fact that these associations appeared to be sporadic in their findings as evidence that these relationships are complex rather than systematic. In other words, age is complexly associated with some markers of time-lapse imaging, but not systematically associated with faster or slower uh, growth of embryos. The commentary from Messager and Valera from EVRMA states that future research focused on generating ESAs, or embryo selection algorithms, should include variables related to embryonic development and those related to patient characteristics and treatment characteristics as well, which is really what this study was trying to get to. This way, they say, quote, it would be somehow possible to normalize each prediction for each particular patient uh, and specific context, taking one more step towards a global standard and even personalized reproductive medicine. And I have two quick comments on this paper. The first is that the authors didn't truly assess for confounding variables, which is what the methods and titles stated. They looked at patient and treatment characteristics that were associated with time-lapse parameters, but they didn't actually look at outcome parameters. So really they're looking at association with time-lapse imaging and not, not true confounders. Secondly, with 266 statistical comparisons, it's not surprising that many were uh, found. Some of these may just be due by random chance. The authors found 30 things that were statistically significant. You might expect 13 with this many comparisons just by random chance. Given that the findings were all sporadic, for example, again, age is associated with some time-lapse parameters, but not most of them, I think these findings might just be the result of somewhat type 1 error due to doing so many comparisons, uh, not necessarily because there are complex relationships as the authors interpreted the data. 
But overall, since this is meant to be exploratory and generate uh, more data that we should be using as we look at AI and machine learning, I think this may give us patient and treatment parameters that should be evaluated for these algorithms going forward. All right, so this next study entitled Large for Gestational Age After Frozen Embryo Transfer, an evaluation of the possible causes for this relationship is from another one of the new sister journals, FNS Reviews, and was conducted by Dr. Rachel Gaum and colleagues at the Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. As we know, frozen embryo transfer is associated with increased rates of large for gestational age infants and increased macrosomia when compared with fresh embryo transfer or natural conception, or as I should I say, unassisted conception. A PubMed literature search was conducted to understand the state of current literature suggesting causes for this relationship and to highlight areas in need of future research to potentially address and correct this finding. And spoiler alert, there's a lot of need for future research. This first relationship evaluated cryopreservation method. There is great heterogeneity with respect to this subject. Slow freeze versus vitrification, day of embryo cryopreservation, and natural cycle versus program cycles. Epigenetic changes such as DNA methylation resulting in an alteration of the fetal placental unit appear to be the most prevalently studied and likely mechanism for these changes seen in FET cycles. However, some studies comparing fresh and frozen transfers to natural conception control patients found no difference. The next subject with regard to this topic was cryopreservation culture. Most of the literature surrounding culture type and changes in birth weight have been within fresh transfers. However, the authors note that there's a scarcity of data surrounding that of FET cycles, and the authors note that this is an area that deserves more attention in the future. The next area they looked at is the length of time in cryopreservation culture. Among frozen blastocyst transfers, there are conflicting data regarding culture duration and singleton birth weight, as well as incidents of large gestational age. Further studies will need to be done to determine whether extending culture beyond day three is a true risk factor for delivery of larger gestational age infants. And the last two subjects that they looked at was gonadotropin and elevated estradiol levels. The authors note that small for gestational age has been shown in fresh cycles with higher estradiol levels, but when they look at birth weights after FET and evaluating the estradiol levels in the preceding fresh cycle, the current evidence reviewed by the authors does not support that there are any differences in birth weights regardless of the preceding E2 value. And then the last subject they looked at was the type of endometrial preparation for the frozen embryo transfer. There was one large study that they looked at that had nearly 10,000 patients by Ernstead et al., and it showed that when compared to natural frozen blast cycles, programmed cycles, so AKA without a corpus luteum, had a significantly higher risk of macrosomia. So there may be some protective effect of the corpus luteum on birth weight. One thing that I will point out about this study though is that there were more male infants and post-term pregnancies in the program cycle cohort, which could very well be a contributing factor as to why there are higher birth weights. So there are several possible causes of increased fetal weight in FET cycles, including absence of the corpus luteum, superphysiologic estradiol levels in the preceding fresh cycle affecting the endometrium, epigenetic modifications, and embryo culture duration. I think that the authors provided a nice summary of the available literature, as this is a very difficult question to answer. A lot of the studies reviewed were heterogeneous in that the lab protocols varied widely, they had small sample sizes, 
and there were absence of adequate randomized controlled trials and thus indicating a need for further investigation in this area. I think this keeps coming up again and again and again. And I just think that there are so many different factors that go into gestational size of delivery, uh, looking beyond maternal BMI, but also maternal diet during pregnancy, as well as exercise and other habits. And I think it's just so hard to control for all of those different factors. I have a really hard time thinking that the epigenetics of early embryo culture really continue to influence that beyond nutritional status during pregnancy. Keith, that's an interesting controversy, whereas I have the other thought. I think that I can't understand how maternal diet would be a confounder, because how is maternal diet dependent on whether you get a fresh or a frozen embryo transfer? Um, but having said that, um, this whole idea of epigenetics is fascinating, and, and can you actually imprint and make a change for life? It's just a really unknown question, but a really important one. So thank you, um, Blake Evans, for joining us on this inaugural FNS On Air, including articles from our sister journals, FNS Reports and FNS Review. Please go back to the table of contents for fertility and sterility, because we skipped some wonderful articles in the domains of fertility preservation, reproductive science, endometriosis, as well as andrology. There's just so much great work, we can't cover it all, but I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, and you'll listen to the future ones, including all the work by Dr. Simone, who's putting into translating our Journal Club Globals into podcasts. Eve, Micah, Blake, a pleasure. Please say goodbye to everybody, and uh, see you soon. All right, thanks so much, and again, special thank you to Michael Simone for producing, editing, and being with us on this journey. So thanks, Simone. It was a pleasure again, as always. The take-home theme I heard today was uh, maybe sometimes we're a little bit too fast to adapt technologies. We need to continue to push these from a research perspective. That's what makes our field amazing. But maybe as clinicians, we need to be a little bit more skeptical before we implement these widely and, and charge patients for some of these tests and interventions that don't necessarily have evidence to support their use clinically. I agree. And thank you all very much for having me today. It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to future podcasts with you all as well. Thank you all. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.